This morning, we're going to take a break from our study of the Gospel of Luke to look at one of the stanzas found in Psalm 119. And I have been praying that this will strengthen us as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to greatly impact our lives. Psalm 119 is a beautifully crafted acrostic poem consisting of 22 stanzas connecting to each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it is a psalm dedicated to the blessing that comes from the word of God. By using the Hebrew alphabet and by using a variety of terms like precepts, statutes, promise, law, rules, and testimonies for the word of God, this psalm provides a robust view of God's word as completely sufficient and worthy of great admiration. Years ago, the church I was serving at preached through the psalm one stanza at a time, and the impact of this still resonates with me today. And I recently went back to look at a study I did to prepare to preach one of the stanzas known as the Resh stanza in Psalm 119, 153 through 160. And as I did, I found that it reminded me of great truths that I believe are applicable today. You see, the rest stanza is filled with pleas for God's care and affliction. And it's filled with a desire to be revived in the midst of it and a pursuit of God in light of it. Now, before we get to the passage, let me ask you a simple question to think about. Where do you turn for life in affliction or struggles? Maybe you have experienced job loss, reduced pay, or questions of job security recently. Maybe you have had health concerns or you've even been tested positive for COVID-19 or someone in your family has. Maybe you have experienced family strife or greater temptation towards sin. Think on any of those situations or struggles that you may be in or any that you've been in in the past and ask yourself, where have I turned for life in the midst of it? You see, our stanza this morning, I think, addresses this very question, and it reveals a challenging answer for where we should turn. Ultimately, I think in the end, what we'll see is that it shows us that the source of life is knowing God through His Word. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to Psalm 119, 153 through 160, and read it together with me. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts and give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. This stanza is built around one imperative that is repeated three times in verses 154, 156, and 159. And the imperative is the Hebrew word chayah, 
which means to give life, to revive, or to quicken. Think of a wick of a candle about to burn out, and all of a sudden it's restored fully and a thriving flame bursts forth. And as we examine this psalmist's usage of this imperative, I believe we see three things that he encourages us towards in our affliction. First, we see that in affliction and trials, we should run to the God of faithful promises. The first part of this stanza is an intense plea. Look at verses 153 and 154 and just listen to the cries of the psalmist. Look on my affliction, deliver me, plead my cause, redeem me, give me life. There are eight total imperatives in this entire stanza and five of them show up in these two verses. Many call this the emotional cycle because the psalmist's emotions seem to be so heightened that he cries out to God in a rapid fire of imperatives. Look on me. Redeem me. Plead my cause. Deliver me. Give me life. And these are bold requests asking for God to act on his behalf. Now notice the first one at the beginning of verse 153. He says, look on my affliction. The psalmist is calling for personal attention from the author, creator, and sustainer of the universe. And he uses a fascinating word here. It's the Hebrew word ra'ah, which is part of Yahweh Yireh, what we know as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. It's from the Old Testament story of Abraham being called by God to sacrifice Isaac as an offering and God providing a ram in Isaac's place. The word Yaira provides is the Hebrew word ra'ah, to see. And the psalmist will actually use this word again. He uses it first here in 153 and later in verse 159 when he says consider. So what I think he's doing is calling on God to look on him due to the testimony of God helping his people and caring for his people. He's essentially saying, in the same way that you have for your people throughout history, set your attention on me. Now continue on in verse 153. He says, look on my affliction and deliver me. He pleads with the Lord to pull him out of his affliction. And did you take note of where the confidence to ask these requests comes from at the end of 153? It says, for I do not forget your law. So he's saying here, I've not forgotten your law. I have not strayed from your word. I'm clinging to it. So Lord, I'm asking, set your attention on me and deliver me. But there's even more that he asks for. And he calls for God to move even closer, saying, plead my cause. Which in the Hebrew mind conveys a legal motive. He's saying, stand in my defense. Be my attorney. Defend me before my accusers. He wants the perfect, just, righteous God who cannot lie to argue on his behalf. What boldness. 
But he doesn't stop there. He then asks God to move even one step closer as he says, redeem me. Now the language here references a kinsman redeemer. And maybe you've heard of this before. This is used of the nearest relative that according to Leviticus 15.48 is legally responsible for standing for him and maintaining his rights. So do you see, he's calling on God to be his kinsman redeemer, to be his closest relative, to take up a responsibility to purchase him and to restore him. And all of this leads to the first use of our imperative at the end of verse 154, where he says, give me life according to your promise. Do you see how everything has been inching closer to this plea? The psalmist feels his hopelessness. The oppression and the affliction that he is under has pulled him down to the dust. His wick is running out. And so what he does is he runs to God and he cries out, revive me. Now, pay close attention to how he wants to be revived. It is according to your promise. As I mentioned earlier, throughout Psalm 119, the psalmist uses various terms to refer to the word of God, each conveying a particular aspect of it. And really, it shows this beautifully magnificent fullness of God's word and its sufficiency. And here his reflection is on God's faithful promises. You see, he wants to be seen, delivered, and redeemed in affliction. He wants to be revived, just like we all do. And he knows that our God is a God of faithful promises. So he runs to God for life, according to those promises. But I also think that we see him running to God through those promises, using those promises to be a part of what gives him life. And I say this because of the reason he gave back in 153 for asking for his deliverance. He says, because I have not forgotten your law. You see, he's clinging to it. He's trusting in it. He hasn't let go of God's law. And in God's law, we find his promises. We find his promised word. So I imagine it working like this with Psalm 19, 7 through 8. Psalm 19, 7 through 8 says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So as the psalmist is in affliction and he's thinking on the word of God and he's studying it, he's meditating, he's, he's, he's diving into it. And he comes to God and he says, God, you're, you promised to revive my soul through your law. You promised to make me wise. You promised to rejoice my heart. You promised to enlighten my eyes. So what I am doing right now is I am trusting in that promise and I am crying out to you, revive me according to that promise and do it as I cling to your law, as I have not forgotten it and I will not stray from it. Now do you see how this might work for you in your situations? 
You see, the world says seek life in the things of this world. In affliction, just run to some other pleasure to fill you with joy. Maybe that's food or drink or entertainment. But God says, come to me and seek life in my promises. Cling to my word and I will revive your soul. I will rejoice your heart. So church, let me ask you again, are you struggling this morning? Do you relate with the psalmist? Do you feel like you're overwhelmed and on the brink of death, like your wick is about to run out? Pray to God then. Pray with fervency. Pray with confidence. Give me life according to your promise. And then run to God through his word and see him give you life through it. So the first thing I think this stanza shows us to do in affliction and trials is that we should run to the God of faithful promises. The second thing I think we see is that in affliction and trials, we should run to the God of just judgments. Now it seems that in verses 155 through 156, the psalmist is more subdued in his emotions. And what I want us to notice is how theology, who God is and how he works, tempers the heart of the psalmist. You see, because I fear we avoid pursuit of deep knowledge of God because we think it's just for pastors or it's not applicable. But church, let me tell you, it's theology that helps us in our affliction. It's theology that helps us in our greatest need. And look at how theology is what is helping the psalmist here. First, in 155, he reflects on the position of the wicked. And he says, salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. See, he's revealed a heart that knows the Lord cares for his people in the previous section, and that he's clinging to God's promise to do that. And what this seems to do is cause him to think on those who are not the Lord's people, the wicked, and their true position. And the wicked, he says, are those that do not seek God's statutes. They're those that don't run to God through his word. And church, this is so helpful to think on sometimes because though the wicked may seem to prosper momentarily, the truth is they are far from prosperous because they are far from God's salvation. And notice the shift at the beginning of verse 156. He says, great is your mercy, O Lord. Now what I want you to see is that he's not saying that those who keep God's statutes are close to salvation as though keeping God's statutes is earning salvation. First he says it's those who seek God's statutes and I think words matter when we're looking at the scriptures. But then he moves straight into talking about the mercy of God. And you see, it's the mercy of God that extends towards those who seek him through his word that he is clinging to. And I want this to be clear because it's only God's mercy towards us that saves us. The reality is the only difference between those that run to the law of God and those that do not seek the statutes of the Lord is the mercy of the Lord. 
Ephesians 2 tells us that prior to God performing the miracle of the new birth, we were all spiritually dead. We were unable to see and enjoy God, unable to follow his statutes and seek them. We were instead following Satan, bound by the desires of our flesh and destined for wrath. But in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, Paul says this, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Oh, church, the mercies of God are great in magnitude, number, and consistency, and they come to us new every morning, and that is what we are banking our life on, is the mercy of the Lord. And when we think on who God is and how he works towards his creation in mercy towards those who seek his statutes and judgments towards those who don't, I think we see the point of the second use of our imperative, kaya, at the end of verses 156, where he says, give me life according to your rules. Now it's helpful here to know that the Hebrew word can mean either rules and commands or ordinances and judgments. And more than likely, you might even have a translation before you that says judgments instead of rules. Various translations interpret it one way or the other due to the context they see around it. In fact, throughout Psalm 119, we see the same Hebrew word interpreted in different ways based on that context. So what we want to do is look at the context of the passage, and we want to pray, and we want to study, and we say, what, what are you clinging to? And after prayer and study, I believe he means judgments here. My encouragement is to keep studying yourself, but let me show you why. If you notice, his focus is on God. And his focus is on how God works in mercy towards those who seek his statutes and in judgment towards those who don't. And so his conclusion is, give me life according to your judgments, judgments of mercy and judgments of wrath. I thought of Exodus 34, six through seven, where God says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So the psalmist is thinking on this God who is merciful and gracious, who is forgiving, but who also will not clear the guilty and he runs to the merciful judgment of God. So here's how I see this working out in his heart. You see, he's, he cries out to God. He says, God, I know that you are a merciful and gracious God. And I am clinging to your word. I have not forgotten it. I am seeking your statutes. I am studying it. I am trusting in it. And I want to let it guide me, and I want to obey it. And as I do, God, I trust that you will give me life according to your mercy, which forgives my sin and makes me new. 
So this stanza shows us that in affliction and in trials, we should run to the God of just judgments. There's one more thing I think this stanza shows us, and it's that in affliction and in trials, we should run to the God of covenantal love. In verses 157 through 159, we see what his theology has done for him. It pushes him to cling to his pursuit of God's word in the midst of great affliction. He writes, verse 157, many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. In his commentary, George Zimmick comments, although those who were relentlessly persecuting him and habitually harassing and oppressing him were multitudinous, they did not deter him from his pathway of obedience. You see, though his oppressors were great in number, he knows that God's mercy is greater. And so he resolves not to swerve from the testimonies of God and he sees the pursuits of the faithless as sorrowful, loathsome, and disgusting. He doesn't even want to go near them. Now I want to be clear, I think that he's not saying that he looks and judges the faithless and says, you disgust me, but he says, your pursuits are disgusting. Think about it this way. God says his mercy extends to those who seek to keep his commands. The mercy of the creator of everything who created life by a spoken word is available. Mercy from God is available. And what God asks of us is to seek him through his word and to seek to obey his law. And he moves in mercy towards those who love him. So church, I want to call on you to remind yourself daily in pursuit of the kingdom of God over this world that his mercy is greater. It's greater than any sin. It's greater than any life. His mercy is greater. Because this is what pushes us back to the life-giving word time and time again. Oh, church, if you do not see the sadness of being far from God, you will have a hard time seeing the joy of being close to God through his word. Now, look at the third repetition of our imperative. What the psalmist says in verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. I love them, Lord. And give me life according to your steadfast love. You see, the psalmist loves the precepts of God because he knows they are God's good and righteous precepts. And he knows that every one of them is for his good. And so he beckons God to consider his love for them. And then he prays again, give me life. I need life. Revive me, Lord. And this time, he calls on the hesed love of God, one of the most beautiful words in the scriptures. 
This is the covenant-keeping, never-shaking, immovable, consistent, steadfast love of God. Oh, church, God's love is promised to those who have been made alive in Christ. The love that has existed from eternity past inside of the perfect Trinitarian God is upon all who are in Christ. We are enveloped in that love. The love of the Father for the Son that will never fade away is set firmly upon those who have been called by his name. Do you realize that? Do you realize, church, that if you are in Christ and you can be confident that we are if we're seeking to trust him in his word, if you are in Christ, the hesed love of the Almighty is constantly directed towards you and his covenantal love can never be broken. This means the trials that you face are never void of his love. The turmoil of this life is not void of his love. There may be times when we feel oppressed. There may be times when we feel like the wick of our candle is close to burning out. But listen to this. His love is still steadfast towards you. And his covenant can never be broken. So let me share you what this looks like for me. Honestly, I have frequent battles with discouragements over various things, and, and there are times even when I'm unsure of what is really discouraging me. My heart simply feels heavy. My wick feels faint and about to burn out. And I'm learning over and over again that ultimately what that means is my eyes are no longer on Christ and they're on the things of this world. And in those moments, I feel temptation to pursue happiness in various different things. But what I'm trying to learn to do more and more, and by God's grace, I'm seeing fruit from it, is to run to the word of God, to study it, to meditate on it, to seek to obey it for my good, and then to say, I trust in your steadfast love to give me life and revive me through this, Lord. And this is because I know that our God is a God of covenantal love. So this section of the stanza, I think, shows us that in affliction and in struggles and trials, we should run to the God of covenantal love. Now, at this point, I think it's helpful to ask and to answer, how do we know that we can trust God? And I think the last verse of this stanza points to our answer, as I believe the psalmist gives us the reason why he does not forget God's law, why he does not swerve from God's testimonies, why he desires to keep God's commands, and why he loves God's precepts and why time and time again he runs to God for life through his word. And this is because God's word is true and everlasting. Look at how he concludes in verse 160. The sum of your word is truth. 
and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. I can think on that over and over again. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Do you see how the psalmist is fully resting in the truth of the one he's praying to? And he declares first that the entirety of God's word is truth. Notice here how he moves from the plural to the singular. The sum or the totality of your word, plural, is truth, singular. Beloved, I think this is helpful to see because it reminds us that we can't separate any portion of God's word from the totality of it. All of it combined equals truth, and all of it gives us life. So we need to avoid picking and choosing portions of it that we like and don't like. We won't have the whole truth. We need it all. The psalmist doesn't just say that God's word is truth. He also proclaims that God's word is everlasting. At the end of 160, he says, every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Every one of them endures forever. You see, it's not just that God's word is true as a reason why we can trust him, but also that it's everlasting. It's perfect, it's sufficient, it will never run out. Now did you notice how much of this stanza is wrapped up in the word of God? Every other line speaks to some aspect of God's word. Verse 153 is the law. Verse 154 is his promise. Verse 155 is his statutes. Verse 156, his rules or judgments. Verse 157 is his testimonies. 158, his commands. 159, his precepts and steadfast love. Coming to the culmination that the sum of his word is truth. And so what we see is the psalmist banking on the fact that God's word will never prove to be wrong and it will abide forever. And that's how he knows he can run to God for life through that word. George Zimmick comments again, indeed, a primary means for bridging the gap between the realities of heaven above and the earth beneath is the book of God. So church, let's soak in the word of God because there we find life. In the word of God, we find the promises of God. In the word of God, we find the just judgments of God. In the word of God, we find his steadfast love. And so we dig into the word of God. We read it, we study it, we meditate on the word of God. We seek to obey it because we desire to know God through his word because we desire to have life. And as we do this, the word shapes us, it molds us, it satisfies us, it strengthens us, it challenges us, and it fills us with everlasting hope. So this is why I say that ultimately through these threefold imperative cries, I believe the psalmist shows us that the source of life is knowing God through his word. Grace Church, in the midst of affliction, run to the God of faithful promises. 
in the midst of struggles, run to the God of just judgments. In the midst of temptations, run to the God of covenantal love and run to God through his word because his word is true and everlasting. Let me pray this word over us. Our Father in heaven, magnify your name. God, we praise you for the life you give through your word. We thank you for the price paid on Calvary to redeem us and how you have made us alive in Christ. Father, I ask that you would take this word and plant it deep in our hearts, that you would teach us to run to you in our afflictions and to run to you in all of life, and that you would teach us to run to you through your word. Father, I ask that you would give life this morning to those who feel their wick is about to burn out. God, look on them, deliver them, and revive them. And I ask all of this because of the blood of Jesus Christ, which shows us your great mercy and love And according to your promise, your judgments, and your steadfast love, in the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.